Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. It is so good to see you guys. I tell you, when it comes to Thanksgiving, you are at the top of our list of what we're grateful for. Um, it is wonderful to be with you guys and serve you, and I hope you had a good weekend. Um, we are in the final message of our intentionality series where we've been exploring how to live our lives in a way that really makes a difference. And so this last intentional that we wanted to cover is in no way the least. I mean, it's actually foundational from which we will build all the other intentionals from. And I think Tim Keller summarizes it best when he said, there are five things that make up a wise, godly life. And the number one thing is put your heart's deepest trust in God and in his grace. And every day remind yourself of his unconditioned covenantal love for you. And that reminds me of what Solomon, who wisely tells his son, he said, let love and faithfulness never leave you, bind them around your neck and write them on the tablet of your heart. And this Hebrew word for love is, is hesed. And it's one of the most important words in the Old Testament because it describes the essence of God himself. Hesed refers to a covenantal love. It's similar to marriage, and it's, but it's specifically referring to the covenant love that God had for Israel and for us. And it's a love um, that is not going to abandon, and it's going to stay the distance. So the, and the Hebrew word for faithfulness is amet, which means stability, security, integrity, and truth. So basically Solomon is saying, keep God's love and truth close. Um, it's similar to the instructions um, that the Israelites were given when they were given the commandments. I mean, they, it says they were to tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. So years ago, I went to a Jewish museum, and they showed how the, how the Jews tied scriptures to their wrists and leather boxes. You know, I thought it was a little bit different, right? But it's a tangible way to help you to remember. I mean, you wrap these leather straps, and I don't know if we have a picture here, that where you just wrap them around your wrist, and you, you cannot help but be continually aware of their presence. And it triggers you to remember this truth about God. Now, the message translation, he says, they say the same words of Solomon this way. Don't lose your grip on love and loyalty. Tie them around your neck. Carve their initials on your heart. Carve the initials on your heart. How diligent are we at remembering the love and faithfulness of God? You know, Jesus instructs us to be intentional in remembering God's love and grace this way. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. You know, Jesus goes on to describe himself as the true vine. He's saying we cannot bear fruit if we are not connected to the vine of his love and grace. So remain in my love. And remain means to abide, dwell, stay, be present. How present are you every day to the love and grace of God? And so that's our question for today. How do we remain in God's love? How do we not lose our grip on his love and loyalty for us? Especially when we're in those times where we're questioning, like, where is God? So to help us envision this more clearly, um, let's look at a more unknown woman who followed Jesus with a loyal tenacity to the very end. And in some ways, she reminds me of Abraham Lincoln. He said... Um, Many free countries have lost their liberty, and ours may lose hers, 
But if she shall, be it at my proudest plume, not that I was the last to desert, but that I never deserted her. So to never desert, to stay loyal um, through the good and the bad, to be obedient for the long haul. I mean, that's our goal, isn't it? Because once this woman that we're going to be talking about today met Jesus, she never, ever deserted him. Even after Jesus' death, she remained faithful when so many others did not. So what was the glimpse that she had of Jesus that kept her so steady and true for the rest of her life? Well, that woman was Mary Magdalene. Now, um, there's a lot of confusion about who Mary Magdalene is and because there are just so many numerous Marys mentioned in the gospel. I mean, Mary was a common female name in Israel during that time of Christ. And yet you'd think like with God, with all of his sovereignty, that he could have made it a little less complicated. But um, we have, you know, the most famous Mary, the mother of Jesus. We have the Mary, Mary of Bethany. She was the sister of Martha and Lazarus, and they lived in Bethany, which was a town nearby Jerusalem. So that was an easy place for Jesus and his followers to come and visit. Um, Mary of Bethany, she would sit at Jesus' feet to learn from him, which was the posture that described a disciple. Um, there was Mary, uh, the mother of James and Joseph. She was at Jesus' crucifixion. And then there was the other Mary who went to the tomb um, to bring spices for Jesus' body. Uh, but the Mary that we're talking today is Mary Magdalene, which um, most likely refers to her from being from the city of Magdala, which was on the northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee. But we don't know that much about her, despite her being mentioned 14 times in the gospel. And that's more than any male follower of Jesus except for Peter, James, and John. Now, she is often portrayed as a prostitute in movies and books, yet there is no scripture anywhere that suggests that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. In the movie The Last Temptation of Christ, she was the seductress of Jesus. In The Da Vinci Code, she was Jesus' wife with whom she, with whom she had a child um, with him, which has been thoroughly proven to be false. And as much as I appreciate Mel Gibson's The Passion of Christ movie, Mary Magdalene was depicted as the woman caught in adultery, which is not biblically accurate. We just don't know that much about her past. She could have been, but we don't know that. So some of the confusion may be attributed to Pope Gregory, because in 591, he combined Luke's depiction of this sinful woman who anointed Jesus' feet with expensive oil and with her tears she washed it, which Mary of Bethany is also... um, anoints Jesus' feet with oil, and it's unclear, though, that, if, that they're the same person. But then Pope Gregory also adds Mary Magdalene as being the same woman. So he basically just threw all three women into one person. So why did, why did that happen? I don't know. Each woman has a brief but a very powerful story of their own. Now, the Vatican has corrected this error in 1969, but yet confusing misinformation just continues. So what do we really know about Mary Magdalene? The first time that she's mentioned in the Bible is here. Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Now, she had seven demons. Now, that may mean that she had seven specific demons cast out, or seven often refers to completeness. Thereby, it could imply that Mary was fully dominated by evil spirits. It communicates that her suffering was severe. So how do you imagine Mary having these demons within her? What do you think that her life was like? 
And then it leads to questions like, well, what do we do with all of Jesus' accounts of casting out demons and how the Bible talks about principalities and powers and forces? I mean, what does Paul mean when he says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms? You know, it makes me think, like, why are we, the church today, so silent about something that the Bible is so loud on? Now, that's something for another message. Um, But yet, when we know, what we know is that Mary was tormented for years by demons. That would mean that she would have been cut off from the temple and society. None of her family or friends or the church had been able to help her. She was enslaved in her lost condition. She had no control of herself. She lost all dignity. So imagine what that must have felt like to have absolutely no help and hope from anywhere. So when I try to imagine what it must have been like for Mary Magdalene, I remember the eyes of a patient who was in torment. Now, as a counselor, you know, there are some cases that just stay locked in your mind forever. And one of them was this older teen I worked with like 35-some years ago. Um, It was in a long-term psychiatric hospital, and that dealt with more severe psychological disorders. And although um, we had others who had her specific diagnosis, she experienced it differently. Like one minute, she would be okay, and then she would just flip. And you would just, you'd see it in her eyes. It was absolute terror. She'd see things that no one else could see, like often screaming about demons that were trying to kill her and others, and, and she would then <clears throat> harm, try to harm herself and others in that fear. <clears throat> so as staff, you know, we were accustomed to certain, certain psychological disorders. They would cause one to see things that weren't there or hear things, and they would sometimes become violent. But this was different. Right? You know, even those who, um, some of my coworkers who didn't believe in anything supernatural, they were actually terrified of her episodes. Because it would take about seven of us to help contain her. Um, she lived on this unit for a year with us, and the main thing that we could do was just keep her, try to keep her safe. We could put her in a padded room, we could medicate her, but we didn't have any cure. And the helplessness and hopelessness that this teen must have felt, it just reminds me of the desperation that Mary Magdalene must have felt too. To be alone in torment and have no hope of a cure. You know, a few a few years after working in this hospital, I met a psychologist whose name is Dr. Frank Sizer. Um, He had previously been a Catholic priest until he was asked to leave his parish. And the reason that he was asked to leave was because he had this encounter with the Holy Spirit, and it so changed him. And one of the results of that was that when um, the students from the Catholic school would come to the confessional at the church during school hours, Father Frank, he would pray for them, and he would bless them. And these kids would fall out under the power of the Holy Spirit, um, out of the confessional and onto the floor. Now, they were unharmed. Uh, but they were touched by God. But that just didn't sit well with the school or the, or the parish. So he left. He ended up leaving the priesthood. He became a psychologist, and the power of the Holy Spirit never left him. You know, Ross and I got to see him several times at our church in Tulsa um, where he would come and speak. And when he shared, God would move in such power over people. You know, and one time there was this woman, and she had a leg that had been crippled as a child, Um, because she had fallen off a deck that was two stories high during an earthquake. So she was, you know, older than me. And in in the service, Dr. Sizer prayed for her along with many others. 
And people were overwhelmed by the power of the Holy Spirit. It was very similar to the students in the confessional. And what was unique, though, for me was I would watch, um, we watched for about an hour, and this woman was on the floor. She appeared to be, like, almost asleep. And, um, but her leg that had been crippled, it was moving like it, like you might have, like a physical therapist was moving it, and it just kept moving. Uh, she seemed unaware of that. But when she finally got up, she no longer limped anymore. And I'm like, what do you do with that? You know, I share that story just for a few reasons. First, um, Dr. Sizer knew something more about the Holy Spirit and, and showed wisdom and discernment. Second of all, it's just so beautiful to me. I, it makes me hunger. I want to see more of that, of the miracles of God. And then third, um, it gave for me, like, Dr. It gave credibility to Dr. Sizer for me because at the time I was heading up a counseling center for our church there. And um, so he came to speak to our staff on how do we discern the difference between mental illness and demonic oppression from a clinical and spiritual perspective. You know, how, you know, there are biological aspects to many psychological disorders and, and, there's, and the demonic is not involved at all. Um, and he shared experiences when the demonic was involved and how Jesus can change it. Because it was just so powerful to listen to someone with this background in both psychology and theology who walked out this reality of both sides without making it like this big, scary deal. Because it was just part of following Jesus. So here we have Mary Magdalene. She is fully tormented by demons and she meets Jesus. Um, He commanded the demons to leave her and her life was forever changed. So what do you think that moment was like for her? You know, an interpretation of this scene is beautifully portrayed in The Chosen. How many of you have gotten to see The Chosen? Isn't it great? It's, you can see it free online. And it's, this scene is in the very first episode. So it helps you visualize what Jesus' interaction with Mary may have been like. You know, how he simply says her name. I mean, Jesus calls her by name, and it's foreshadowing what the Bible tells us, that Mary, this demon-possessed woman, becomes the first of all the disciples to see Jesus after the resurrection. And she doesn't recognize him until he calls her by name. So how does this demon-possessed woman become the first one to see Jesus after the resurrection? So let's look a little bit more at her life. You know, as mentioned in Luke's passage above, we know that Mary and other women were part of this group that traveled with Jesus. And it says, um, along with Joanna, the wife of Chuzza, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them, Jesus and those traveling with him, out of their own means. Mary and these other women had some financial means which allowed them to help care for Jesus and the other disciples. And here's a picture that may represent a little bit how they traveled, men and women together. And as I've been thinking about this band of Jesus followers, I've just been so struck with Jesus' treatment of women. I mean, it appears that these women were not just getting, you know, the men their food and helping them with the details as they traveled all over Galilee. Jesus was discipling all of them. Because even, you know, like with all the cultural issues that surround men and women, especially at that time, Jesus stands out as someone who can value the good gifts in men and women without minimizing one's gender. He doesn't get so weird about all these gender issues. He fully receives and blesses each person. Like, you know, the time with a woman who's, who's known as a sinner, which again may be different, maybe a different woman than the time when Mary of, Beth, Mary of Bethany does the same thing. 
But this woman comes to Jesus, anoints his feet with really expensive oil, and then washes them with her hair and her tears. And again, I don't understand the cultural aspects of this need and how we're supposed to do foot washing, um, but we know that some of those that were present were very concerned not only about the amount of money that was spent on the oil, but they questioned and they criticized Jesus, saying that Jesus did not know who and what sort of woman this is who was touching him. I think that this shows how Jesus was so healthy in his sexuality that he could receive gifts from both genders and he did not sexualize it. He valued the gift that he was being given in the washing of his feet. Now, was this woman healthy in all the ways that she gave it? Was she touching him in ways that may not have always been pure? I don't know. We don't know this, right? But I love that Jesus was able to put the right meaning to what she was offering. And that just touches me. Because I, I appreciate, you know, healthy physical and emotional boundaries between men and women. However, I love that Jesus doesn't like to stay distant or defensive with women. He is not so terrified of women that they're going to be the, some kind of seductress that he can't be close to and that he can't relate openly with. Jesus lived as a sexual being, um, valuing the ways that we've all been created, both men and women. I don't know. I just think that's just so special. So, but back to her, back to Mary's story. She is delivered from demons. Mary becomes a key member of Jesus's followers and clearly a leader among the women. For every time we hear her name, it's mentioned. It's at the. It's always at the first of the list. Um, And we see her dedicate her life with every fiber of her being to Jesus for the rest of her life. And yet we see other followers of Jesus struggle with that kind of consistency. Even Jesus' 12 disciples were guilty of running away from him when the pressure became too great. And what we're told is on the night that Jesus was arrested, it says, everyone deserted him and fled. Those who arrested Jesus took him um, to the high priest. Now John, the disciple, he is believed to have come back and then followed Jesus to the high priest. And the Bible tells us, though, But Peter followed him, Jesus, at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. So we see Peter, he stayed on the edge. And this is also where Peter denies that he even knew Jesus. Now, so by the time Jesus is at Calvary to be crucified, John is the only male disciple still with him. All the other men are staying at a self-protective distance out of fear. So what do we see? We see Mary, Jesus' mother there, Mary, mother of James and Joseph, and another woman, and then Mary Magdalene. She never left Jesus during his ministry, and she wasn't going to do it now. She wept at his feet as he died. And after Jesus dies, his limp body is removed, and it's taken to a tomb by the man of, you know, Joseph of Arimathea. And she follows Jesus' body, and she watches when he is placed in a borrowed tomb and guarded by Roman soldiers. Now, because it was Sabbath was about to begin, she had to leave, only to return at the tomb at the first streaks of dawn. In all the confusion, disappointment, and devastation, when others ran away, Mary faithfully stayed. For Mary Magdalene's focus was on, let love and faithfulness never leave you. Like it's, it's like she had them written on the tablet of her heart. And that's what love does, right? Love perseveres. Mary knew God's love and grace would never leave her no matter what. And so she too could persevere. Mary couldn't wait for Sabbath to be over. Love drove her back to that tomb. 
Perhaps she just wanted to be near Jesus, even if it was only to touch the cold rock that, that blocked his tomb. But when she got there, she was dismayed, for the stone had been removed and what? The body was gone. And she hurried to report this back to Peter and John, who then ran to the tomb, and John reached the entrance first, but then Peter barged in, and seeing, they saw nothing there. And the Bible says, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So in their struggle to understand, these men left, but Mary Magdalene lingered. You know, perhaps these thoughts filled her mind, like, where is he? You know, was his body stolen? Like, who could have taken him? She breaks down in tears as it seems like she's lost everything dear to her. And then Mary sees two angels who are seated where Jesus' body had been. And then they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? And they, they have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. And at this she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. I mean, I love her fierce love and determination. It communicated that whatever it would take, she is going to go get Jesus, maybe strap him on her back and get him there. Yet for some reason, she just did not recognize that the gardener was Jesus until it says Jesus said to her, Mary. He spoke her name in that beautiful, familiar voice that she had heard countless times before. She turned toward him and she cried out in Aramaic, Rabbanai which means teacher. So the first person Jesus appeared to and the first words that he ever uttered after he rose from the dead was to Mary Magdalene. Imagine what that must have been like. I mean, he so honored her. He so loved her. He knew her by name and he called her. And not every gospel uh, account um, identifies everything in agreement about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. They don't all focus on the same events. But all four gospel accounts, Mary Magdalene is recognized as the witness to Jesus' crucifixion and burial. Her connection to Jesus is undeniable. And then it goes on, and Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news and said, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he, that he had said these things to her. Well, because Mary Magdalene was the first to share the good news that Jesus had come back from the dead, some, like St. Thomas Aquinas, they have given her the title Apostle to the Apostles. So how do we live a life that is devoted like Mary Magdalene, a life that stays so connected to the love and grace of God? So there's just a few things that I'd say. Like, first, we got to remember... Remember how Jesus saved you. Now, Mary was utterly hopeless and helpless, and Jesus saved her. You know, maybe it's more difficult for some of us because it's been a long time since we have been aware of how desperate we were and how much we needed a Savior. Like, our hearts have forgotten um, how to keep remembering God's love and peace. Or maybe we think that we just weren't that bad to begin with. We were never that desperate. We were never that helpless. And we came to Jesus because we thought this is the right thing to do. And that's good. That's understandable. However, as we continue to grow in our relationship with God, we start to see more and more um, how much farther we have to be who God really created us to be. 
And when we become more aware of how much, you know, that separation is, we know how much we need God and that without him we just can't do it. And that shouldn't bring a despair. It brings a hope and a joy because we continually get to grow in this realization and a gratefulness for what Jesus sacrificed for us to be in this close, accessible relationship with him. So the second one I'd say is remember your past does not keep you from a close relationship with Jesus and leading others. Being in Christ, isn't it? It makes all the difference. So imagine the shame, the rejection, the isolation that Mary experienced um, being demonically oppressed, right? She was an outcast. Yet her past did not keep her from being in a close relationship with Jesus and to lead other people. And the last point I would say is Jesus calls you by name. When Mary heard her own name by the risen Jesus, all of her doubts were melted into peace. You know, Isaiah shows us how God speaks to us in this way. He says, fear not, for I, God is saying, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. There is no fear. God knows your name. You are his. And that is a really deep connection. And for me, I've just been contemplating this phrase. It's really popular today when we talk about, like, parenting or relationships. It's called connect before correct. Um, We talked about this phrase in a previous message on how we help bring out um, the best in others. Oh, okay, thank you. And how we can bring out the best in others um, before we try to correct them. What we want to do is we want to create a safe place. We want to correct, we want to connect with people first because growth and change happens best when someone feels safe and accepted. Now, from a science perspective, we can literally see that our brains do better when we have safe connections. We learn better. We bounce back from difficult things more easily. We're more motivated when we're connected. Like, without connection, we're just not going to grow as well. And when we talk about positive disciplining our children, we begin with connect rather than leading with like a rebuke, like what were you doing, or a frustration or an irritation. Because when we lead with correction, you know, we've all seen that pulling away that people do, right? That eye roll that we get, like, oh my gosh, there goes mom again, like, you know. Um, when we're in that, re- when they're in that reactive mode, then they're, they're not going to think well, they're not going to make good choices. So first we connect. And maybe that's as simple as like, how was your day? And after um, Connect, then we can discuss the problem. We can talk about the need for consequences. But this, you know, Connect before we correct, it works in all relationships. And I know this deeply, and I consistently mess up with it, especially with Ross. For some reason, that man can just irritate me. Anyway, he's awesome, but I can just, it just works. But so if you're not great at this, I do not feel any judgment for me whatsoever, okay? But it does lead me to think about, is this how God interacts with me? Does he connect before he corrects me? Now, if it's true that God's kindness, his gentleness, his goodness is intended to bring us to repentance, then do I experience this kindness, this connection when I've messed up? When I feel like I've disappointed God, myself, and other people, does God want to connect with me first before he corrects me? Now, biblically, it appears to be that he does. God does not use shame, condemnation, and anger to guilt us to make changes. He doesn't withhold his love and his mercy until we shape up, right? He doesn't turn his back on us when we need his kindness in order to repent. So how do you first connect with God? 
Now, it goes right back to the main point of what we said we wanted to be intentional with. As Keller said, put your heart's deepest trust in God and his grace. Every day, remind yourself of his unconditioned covenantal love for you. So every day, we first connect with God, reminding, him, reminding ourselves of his love and grace. Like Mary Magdalene, we remind ourselves of this rock-solid love of God that continues to call us by name, no matter how confusing life gets, right? And out of this exception, acceptance and safeness that we have in him, that's where we make our changes. So what are some specific ways that we can watch, walk this out? And worship team, you can come on up. That'd be great. So what would be some, some simple ways we can walk it out? I'd encourage you again, watch The Chosen. Let it help you picture Jesus' love and power. Um, we can also do Electio Divina, which just means that you read a short passage from the Bible really slowly. Maybe use some of the verses that we highlighted today, like when Jesus talks about being the vine and you are remaining in his love. Just take the words and have a moment of silence. Then you read the passage slowly again. And then after a few more minutes of silence, reflect what are the words and the thoughts or the feelings that come to your attention while you're reading that verse. How is the Holy Spirit, how is God wanting to be more present to you as you read his word? And then an examine is also a great way to do it every day. Like, um, and you can ask yourself these questions, and usually we recommend about two minutes. Now, we're going to carve out just a short bit of time here right now to sit with the Holy Spirit and practice this. We're not going to take two minutes for questions, so don't worry. But, um, and instead of reflecting on today, we're going to take the past few days. So if you would feel comfortable, I'd encourage you just to sort of relax and close your eyes and reflect. And ask yourself this question. Over this past weekend, when did I feel the most joy, freedom, or most loved? In other words, at what time or times over the past few days was I most aware of the presence of God? No matter how difficult it has been, look for God's love and his grace because he's been there. So just take a short time and and ask, when did I feel the most joy, freedom, or the most loved? Over the past weekend, when did I feel the least loved, free, or felt the most discouraged? In other words, when was I least aware of the presence of God? you reflect, what prayer rises up in your heart?
Father, we just thank you so much that you always pursue, that you are omnipresent, you are always there. So, Father, we just pray that you would help us to know more and more how present you are to us, how you are there wanting to show your love and your grace, how we can engage, that you are just so accessible, more than we could have ever ever anticipated. Lord, we pray that the truth of your love and grace would go so deep into our being that it would continuously whisper in our heart the truth of how good you are. Lord, we thank you so much for the goodness and your love. In the precious name of Jesus. We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.